pulling long nights, right? Or working on the mm-hmm. weekends, but it is not uh, going to be the norm for me. And it's just not a way to live life uh, at that level. It's just not sustainable from a very basic mm-hmm. standpoint, but it's also not fulfilling <laughs> to any degree if anybody's right. really honest with themselves about it. Welcome back to the Thriving Lawyers Podcast. In this week's episode, join Michael Kahn for an informative and thought-provoking interview with Catherine Burmeister, an unconventional animal-loving lawyer, author, and speaker. Hi, everyone. This is Michael Kahn, co-founder of Real-Time Creative Learning Experiences and the Thriving Lawyers Collective. More to come on that in uh, the weeks to come. But welcome back to the Thriving Lawyers Podcast. And uh, we have a very interesting guest today, Catherine Burmeister, who is the founder of Burmeister Law Firm, which uh, have offices in Roswell and Atlanta, I believe. Catherine, you can correct me on that. And she's also the author of Overcoming Addiction to the Status Quo, which I think is a very interesting title. And I'm looking forward to talking to Catherine more about the title and uh, and and the book itself. So, Catherine, welcome to the Thriving Lawyers podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Uh, I am too, as well. That it, Catherine and I actually met at a uh, program for the uh, Catherine again. Tell me if I have this right. The North Fulton County uh, Bar Association. Yep. Is that right? That was it. Okay. Did a program, I believe it was wellness related or something like that uh, a few months ago, and Catherine was attended, and then we've connected since then, and uh, she has very graciously offered to do this podcast interview, and we, we were talking before we started recording, and apparently Catherine has done so many podcast interviews, she couldn't remember one that I wanted. I asked her about, so it was hard for her to remember, so she's out there. Uh, talking about her experiences as a lawyer and about the book. And um, I think the more she's out there talking about this, the better for the legal profession. So I am in uh, completely, not that you need my support, Catherine, but I, I say I more power to you. I appreciate Especially that. running your own law firm too and, and doing podcasts. I don't know how you do it all. Yeah, it's been uh, a little busy, but it's been great to have those conversations with a bunch of different people and have people receiving it so well. Great, great. Yeah. So I'm going to start with, Catherine, I, I looked at your, your website and uh, you had a quote on there. Let's just start with your practice as a lawyer and then we'll, we'll, get, we'll have a lot of time talking about the book. But um, on your website about the Burmeister Law Firm, you say that you're an unconventional lawyer well, unconventional and animal-loving lawyer. So I want to have you just expand on that uh, a bit. I'm, I'm intrigued by the unconventional piece, and I'm drawn to the animal-loving piece because I am a real animal lover and uh, particularly dogs. So, so let's talk about that quote. Tell me more about what you mean by unconventional lawyer. Definitely. Um, so I practice personal injury exclusively, um, but even just as a lawyer, I consider myself unconventional first and foremost, because I really bring a holistic approach to my clients. I tailor uh, their needs um, and my response to their needs based on what's best for them at the end of the day. I don't try to fit them into a, 
a particular mold, whereas so many people, um, you know, I think really it's either the churn and burn firms that are PI firms, you know, the billboard ad type people that are just mm-hmm. running through cases as fast as they can. Um, or a lot of people just don't care, quite frankly. I mean, we all have to make a living. I, I appreciate that, but we don't have to do it at the expense of our clients. And I think a lot of people have lost sight of that or just never had sight of it to begin with. So mm-hmm. being holistic with my legal approach and then also running my practice, um, I've been remote since before COVID. So I started my firm in fall of 2018 and I wanted to keep my overhead low to begin with. So I didn't get dedicated office space. I did know that I was going to need some help because while I've done everything from legal secretary up until lawyer in my career, um, it's it's way too much for personal injury in particular to do it all yourself and then also be bringing in all the work on top of it. So I've run everything remotely and I've stayed that way and I've had paralegals that are all out of state and I've had them for two years working for me. So really kind of turning uh, everything on its head in terms of the convention of you know, the legal profession as a whole. I think a lot of people think that uh, it has to be a certain way because it's been that way for so long. And it's a very antiquated profession generally. So people fall into that trap of thinking it has to stay that way because somebody said it did a long time ago. Um, So I'm always about pivoting when I need to, learning new things, trying other things out. I always think there's room for improvement and there's better ways to do things that I may not have come across yet. So that's what I mean by unconventional. Yeah, and uh, I like what you said about there's nothing uh, sacred about some of these the, the aspects of practicing law. I'm, I'm a former lawyer and uh, currently a licensed professional counselor, therapist, and um, I tell clients that all, all the time. There's nothing, nothing special about the 50-minute hour, but that's kind of like the magical time that most of us therapists have come up with to, to meet with clients, but it's uh, if I, there are some sessions with clients that end after a half hour because they're done. Right. They've gotten what they need. And there's some that I've, yesterday I went, I did an hour with a client because uh, that ending at 50 minutes just would not have, would not have been helpful for that client. So, and, and it's consistent, Catherine, with the title of your book. And again, we'll go to the book in a, in a moment, but the whole idea of the status quo, you're, you're definitely opposed you fight against the status quo, both personally and, and it sounds like professionally. I do. Um, I do. It's something that I had to work really hard at, and it was basically out of necessity that it came about. But I do believe that we can consciously make a choice to overcome that addiction to the status quo. And when I say mm-hmm. addiction, I genuinely mm-hmm. believe it is. I, I'm not here to say one addiction is worse than another Um, they're all bad. I am here to say, though, that the addiction to the status quo, I think, leads to a lot of other problems. Because Mm -hmm. our obsession with really focusing on what we should be in our life, um, Mm. you know, these preconceived societal shoulds, um, you know, we should be a certain way, we shouldn't be a certain way. It's either we push it on ourselves, or, you know, it's being externally forced on us by other people. Um, it really catches us, you know, doing a lot of things that I don't think inherently most people would do, right? I mean, we all know, as an example, stealing money is bad, but how many people have we heard of or seen in the news that do it? And you think, how could they possibly be doing that? Or they seem like a really good person. Why would they do that? And it's because they're caught up in the status quo. Um, And, you know, I don't think everybody's bad. It's just, we've all kind of become 
obsessed with this idea of what should be uh, in our lives. And a lot of people, I think, fall into a trap of going down that road toward their own detriment and the detriment of a lot of other people because it doesn't happen in a vacuum. Yeah, you say in your book that I'm just reading one of one of the uh, quotes from your book, perhaps to varying degrees and at different points, one can have some some things together, but the majority of the time, it's all just plowing onward, head down and addicted to the status quo. Comfort is taken in the idea that one just may be doing a little better than the next person, or even if that's not the case, one can pass as being successful while continuing to succumb to losing pieces of oneself ever so slowly. Would you say, I I assume you're speaking about your own experience there. I am. Um, I, (laughs) I, definitely fell into the the thought of if I work hard enough, I'll get to where I want to be um, or mm-hmm. where I deserve to be. And I say deserve after hard work, not that I'm entitled to anything. But the reality is life doesn't go as planned and nothing is guaranteed. So despite knowing that, I still continue to plow ahead and everybody you know, keeps up that facade and that mask and the armor of I'm successful and success is very, very often measured by money, you know, accomplishments professionally, you know, what kind of house you have, what kind of car you have. Um, I was more focused on my professional accomplishments. That's I valued myself based on my identity as a lawyer and what I could accomplish. I've wanted to be a lawyer since I was in middle school. And because of that, I obviously put a huge amount into my life um, invested in getting to that point. Mm-hmm. So thinking, okay, if I invest enough time, I'll get to where I want to be. And then having all of that thrown out the window when the rug was jerked out from underneath me a few times uh, really made me realize, one, that that's not how life works. Two, it's not a fulfilling way to go through life at the end of the day. Yeah. And and um, and, and you go on further in, in your book, if you don't mind me sharing another quote, that your status quo, yours, my status quo addiction, manifested in the following ways. Addicted to being perfect, believing I should always be and do more, believing that if I didn't accomplish certain things by a certain time or way, I wasn't enough, believing that no matter what I accomplished, it was not enough, believing that my anxiety and depression, though actively managed, was a weakness and a failure on my part, underestimating my abilities, thriving off external validation, and more. Yep, all of those. <laughs> um, yeah. It's, I, I think a lot of it, and I talk about it in the book a little bit, I think we're a product uh, naturally of our environment um, and then also part of who we are, just how we're wired. I was mm-hmm. raised, um, I'm an only child, so, but I was raised by very involved parents that weren't helicopter parents at all, just very involved in what I was doing. And I was someone who achieved above average. And so from an early age, that standard was kind of set for me. So anything less than what my normal was, was below my average. So, mm-hmm. you know, and my parents never said like, oh, if you aren't doing X, Y, and Z, you're a failure. That was never said. And it wasn't even implied. But because I got so much um, praise from family, from, you know, teachers, like we all do, it's easy to get swept up in that idea that your, your value is tied to what you can do, not who you are. The external validation you yep. mentioned. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, 
So you, and, 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 and my guess is, and you wrote this book, not just for lawyers, right? Because I, I noticed in the book you directed some discussion to other professionals like doctors and entrepreneurs and professional athletes. This right. is something not, not unique to lawyers necessarily. No, and really addiction to the status quo is not unique to um, any one group of people. Uh, I mean, I think even the stay-at-home mom can get swept up in trying to mm. keep up with what everybody else is doing. But the reason I mm-hmm. talk to professionals and particularly professionals in zero-sum professions, so doctors, lawyers, nurses, corporate executives, and elite athletes, are it manifests the addiction to the status quo manifests itself more drastically I think, and more quickly in those professions. So very much in elite athletes, if they're not winning, they're losing. For me, if I'm not winning cases, I'm losing. For doctors and nurses, if people aren't surviving, they're dying. Um, And in a corporate sense too, I mean, it's just, it's such a high pressure position that if you're not succeeding, you're failing. And it's easy to be reduced to that. Um, instead of who you are and what you're, you're accomplishing. And we all know, I think intuitively that the world's not black and white, but by God, we still try to live by that every day, I think. Um, so really showing that those professions are, are victims of the status quo, I think more often um, than other areas. Yeah. And, and I want to, I want to uh, dr- drill down a little deeper with you personally Um you said earlier the um, the rug was pulled out from under you a couple times or a few times. I want to hear more about that. But before we go there, I also want to have you respond to the idea of the we we did a workshop. I do a workshop called uh, Bolstering Resilience with a couple of colleagues, and um, the focus is on the individual. This is for lawyers on what they can do differently to bolster the resilience and. Uh, at the end, we had a Q and A, and one of the one of the participants said, "This is all well and good, but you know, if we need to talk about you're you're putting all of the responsibility on the individual, you're not talking at all about the systemic nature of uh, the problem here." And I'm talking about law, right? And uh, it was a great comment, and uh, we we spoke more about it after that question, of course. But I'm curious your thoughts about that uh, that that the individual can be addicted and the individual can do things that help build their resilience and, um, and their ability to, to find contentment in the law. But what about if the system itself is unhealthy? I, I think it makes it harder, undoubtedly. Um, and sometimes we have to go through experiences like I did where, you know, you see the really bad side of things. Um, but I really think the only thing we can control um, is our response to those things. So yes, mm-hmm. in a perfect world, we would revamp the legal profession, but I don't think that's happening anytime soon. Billable I mean, hours aren't going anywhere. Huh? No, no. Um, <laughs> but I have to say, you know, a lot of bars are um, talking about mental health and suicide prevention. Mm-hmm. So I think we're mm-hmm. making headway, but it can't just be lip service, right? Um, right. And it can't just be either you're you're happy or you're suicidal. There's again a lot of gray in between those two points. That's right. There's um, the not thriving. There's a not thriving part between right. doing great and addicted. And the, the wellness. Are you familiar with the? Uh, I don't know the exact name of it, but the the wellness on uh, wellness institute on lawyer well being. Yes, they, I am. Yeah. 
So they talk about that in their report that they put out a couple years ago, that there is that huge in-between place of folks who are, just, or, or are not addicted and, and not doing great. They're that kind of just not thriving. Right. Right. And I'm really trying to reach those people because I think it's, I, I felt this way. And I think a lot of people who are overachievers do feel this way. The, the idea that if, if you're not happy, especially when you see all these things that you have, right? So if you are working at a good law firm and you do have a number of cases and you've won a number of cases and you're growing uh, professionally, why aren't you happy? I think we start to think that we're mm-hmm. deficient in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it comes from a place of privilege, right? I mean, we have the, we have a great job in theory, right? Um, we're, you know, we have means to cover our basic needs, but it doesn't mean that people don't still experience um, emotional hardship. Um, and we don't right. really sit and figure out what that is because I always thought if I checked off all of these boxes, I'm a recovering box checker, by the way, if I <laughs> checked off all these boxes, uh, I'm, I'm a recovering line, uh, line crosser router. <laughs> okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I would be happy. And so when I got my dream job, it was probably three months, four months after that, that I sat there and went, well, what do I do now? I don't know what to do with myself and I don't have that, you know, euphoria of being happy so Mm -hmm. what's gone wrong what haven't I done and again it goes back to it's not egotistical for me it was just I I could only control myself so I must have done something wrong um Mm -hmm. and that's just not not the reality you can't happiness is not something you check off and it's not something that once you achieve it it stays there without any work it's definitely an ongoing part of your life, but it becomes a whole lot easier and more manageable, I believe, with experience and practice at it. But it takes getting over the addiction to the status quo, first and foremost, to even start down mm-hmm. that path. Yeah, so why don't we, I want to obviously have you speak about how you did that. So the, I think uh, the listeners will benefit from what worked for you. But before we go there, Share, if you would, just as much as you want, what you referred to earlier about the rug being pulled out from under you. And as you talk about in your book, hitting rock bottom. Uh, yeah. I, um, I passed the bar. I was working for a partner who made a lot of promises and said he was willing to invest in me. Um, and he basically reneged on those promises. And I was told I was a luxury that he couldn't afford. I just didn't really know how to take that. Um, Hmm. And then I held out for another plaintiff's job because I've worked big law uh, before I got my license and there was no way I was going back to that. As Um, a, uh, you say a legal assistant? Yeah, as a document clerk. And um, I saw how soul sucking that was for so many people, um, Hmm. attorneys, you know, admin across the board. It's just a very, it's just a, it is, it's a soul sucking environment. And I think very few Mm -hmm. people disagree on that point. Um, Maybe if they came up in the nineties when it was all, you know, glamorous and they actually got to try cases, but nowadays I feel like it's very different uh, mentality and model than it used to be. But Mm -hmm. I, I got, I held out for that dream job. I found it. I found a partner who had been practicing for 30 years, who had a couple associates close to my age and really uh, taught us by letting us do it. He was always there for support and guidance, but he didn't try to keep us under his thumb. So 
he taught us really well. And I learned a ton in a relatively short amount of time. I was managing my own cases. Um, I had a paralegal that helped me with things. I was doing you know, depositions, uh, doctor's depositions. So he really taught us well. And I'd say about a year and a half after I'd started there, I got a call. Well, I got a text early in the morning and it was from the, the senior associate. He said that the attorneys need to be in before staff. And in my mind, again, because I've, I was had that mentality that I'd had for so long, it's like, well, I did something wrong. Clearly, clearly this wouldn't be happening (laughs) if I hadn't done something, which is silly, but that's when, you know, when you've told yourself that for so long and that's your Mm -hmm. internal dialogue, uh, it's, it's just natural to go to that. So we got Catherine, Catherine, if I can interrupt just for a second, would you say you were, you were the type of person who, when something bad happened, it was, it was, it was your, you, it was your responsibility, but something good happened, it was something external to you, or were you able to also uh, take responsibility for the good things too? I could take responsibility for the good, but I, um, had a hard time accepting compliments. So I may see that I had put effort into it, but it's, it was almost that, okay, well, that's great, but that's the way you should have done it to begin with. Like you Uh should be over (laughs) above average. So it's not that big a deal. Um, so that's how I was. And yeah, we came in that morning and it was just us associates and our senior associate told us that our partner had committed suicide. He, uh, he, I wrote letters. He left letters for us. He left letters for the bar, the state bar. He left letters for his daughters and he had been stealing from clients for eight years. Hmm. So aside from the shock of someone taking their own life, There was obviously the rest of it that had to do with the clients and reconciling who we thought this person was with what he did to our clients. And it was really, really tough. He had lied to our senior associate um, about the overhead numbers and the senior associate had grown up with his daughters, the partner's daughters. So they had a lot of history. Um, so there was even more emotional damage done there, of course, because of that. But uh, yeah, he lied about the overhead. So there was no way we we're going to be able to keep doing what we were doing as a firm. We very quickly realized that we were going to have to pivot and either start a new firm or continue this in some form or fashion. And basically it came down to the senior associate, myself and a paralegal. We all decided to band together and keep trying to move things forward. And what ultimately happened from that was my senior associate now partner, he checked out mentally and physically. He was just not there, mm-hmm. even though his name was on the door. And I fully in, in, in response to the in response to the suicide, he was right. He was too traumatized to 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 be present. Right, right. Practice. And um, mm-hmm. I'm an extremely empathetic person um, and sympathetic. Mm-hmm. But we were all experiencing that too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We all had responsibilities that we had to to push through, and so everything basically fell on me. I ended up running that practice um, for an entire year by default. By default, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I wasn't writing the checks to you know pay ourselves, but uh, everything right. else I was doing. So 
it, it was a lot. I mean, it's, I'm not downplaying the impact on each of us, but we all still had to show up at work and take care of our clients. That's the thing about the law. I think there's unrealistic mm -hmm. standards put on us about what we have to do for our clients. Um, it is to almost to our own detriment a lot of times. And I just don't think that's a healthy approach. Yeah. So say more about that, the unrealistic standards. Yeah. I mean, we have professional obligations, obviously. Um, but I mean, there's so many things that it, what other business or industry would we say that, you know, we have to do so many things to protect our clients' interests, even if it's only even remotely not questionable, but just it, it's, it seems to be the case in the legal profession that we are expecting us to be pushing ourselves to the nth degree, come hell or mm -hmm. high water for our client's benefit. And in mm -hmm. any other area, it would not be that way. Right. I, I think of medical, the medical fields, maybe that way. Um, but even then that's literally life or death. And for us, I'm not saying it's not important what lawyers do and the types of cases that they handle, but mm -hmm. most of the time, most of the time it's not life or death. And I think and, it pushes a lot. You know, it's interesting. You know, you know, it's interesting, uh, Catherine, sorry for interrupting you again, but, uh, I've heard the medical and legal fields compared in terms of stress. And someone said, and specifically thinking of lawyers who do litigation, um, when you're, if you're a doctor, if you're a surgeon and you're operating, you don't have someone coming into the room trying to knock the scalpel, scalpel out of your hand. Right. <laughs> when you're a lawyer, when you're a lawyer in the competitive field of law and litigation, that's that's what the other side does, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's about trying to trying to trip you up or 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 uh, you know uh, find find a weakness in your case or or you know anything that that will uh, um, achieve achieve their goal, which is zealously defending and representing their client. Well, and that's the thing too. I think we a lot of people have taken that zealously advocating to a whole mm -hmm. other interpretation, right? Um, either. Mm -hmm by imposing unrealistic standards on themselves or just being complete and total assholes to the people they have to interact with on the other side. Right. Um, right. But regardless, I mean, we have obligations and I appreciate those, but when they do come at the expense of ourselves, it, it it's just setting everybody up for failure at that point. Right. Um, yeah. And personal injury so in say, particular. Oh, go ahead. Um, so, so, if you wouldn't mind, just uh, share a little bit more then about uh, what, your journey after. So the, everything was laid on you at the firm. You're, you're all still dealing with uh, the aftermath of the partner killing himself. Um, so what, what happened there then for you? How were you able to come out of this? Or, or what, what happened to you before you came out of this? Yeah, I... I was keeping it together. I was operating on adrenaline. I mean, for that entire year, there's no doubt about it. I finally did take a trip out of the country and I got a call from a par my paralegal asking me a question. And I said, I like you and I enjoy you, but why are you calling me when I'm halfway around the world? Mm -hmm. And she said, I can't get a hold of our partner. And he knew one that I wasn't there Two that we had a major deadline and she, you know, he needed to be accessible to her. And so I gave her the approval she needed and I got back in the country and he was off on a retreat in middle Georgia, on like a silent retreat. And 
it all just hit me at that point. It's not like I didn't know what had been happening. It's not like I wasn't experiencing it. But I couldn't do anything else. I literally could not process another thought. I couldn't keep Mm. it in a box anymore. I had to leave the office. And I called my husband on the way home and asked him to meet me there because of how concerned I was about where my where my thoughts were going. And this is when I had, you know, I've been in therapy and I've been on um, low levels of medication for my depression, anxiety. So it's been managed. I can't imagine (laughs) what Mm -hmm. it would have been like had it not been managed at the time. But it just goes to show that it's not a, again, you don't check off a box when it comes to mental health. But I I have enough experience to know that I needed to have somebody there with me. And Mm -hmm. um, after that night, it's almost as if a, uh, a switch had been flipped. I saw things very clearly. I had thoughts and knowledge that I didn't need to keep doing this, that this wasn't sustainable, that this is not obviously a happy way to go through life, but it's one thing to know it. And it's a whole other thing to actually take action on it because change, even if for the better, as you know, Mm -hmm. is still scary. Um, And, but right then everything just came into, (laughs) it came into focus and I was not going to tolerate it anymore. Thank goodness, right? And and it's really kind of it sounds like if I if I asked you more questions about, well, can you tell me more about how that switch went off, would you be able to say, I really don't know. It just kind of happened. They're just for whatever reason, the events all kind of everything kind of all there was this perfect storm and that led me to uh, decide, okay, something's got to shift. Yeah, that's incredibly true. And so when I when I started down this path of helping other people change their life and shift their perspective and trajectory, I really had to dig deep. And the book helped me do that too. Really dig mm-hmm. deep about where where I pulled from in my life to get past this point. Because obviously trying to explain to somebody, I can't just say it's, it's magic, right? <laughs> it's not. <laughs> um, and I definitely right. believe that tragedy can uh, can help people grow, uh, no doubt about it, but it, mm-hmm. you do not have to experience trauma to live a better life or a more fulfilling life. I don't believe that right. at all. So, right. right. So, so say, so then, okay. The, 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 uh, switch was, uh, went off for you and you decided, okay, I need to shift. So, so what, what did that look like? And, and share is you don't have to go into, into, uh, lots of detail, but so what did, now that you had this realization, something's got to shift, then what? I wasn't going to work for somebody again. <laughs> I mm. uh, never won my own business, never won my own law firm, but I mm-hmm. flat out refused to work for someone after this point. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously. And, and, and would you say, what was that about? I mean, it, that was trust issues. Obvious. Right. Yeah. Okay. Some trust okay. issues. Um, and I haven't, inherently had those in the past, but after everything. Um, and then also the idea of giving my absolute all to a number of people that I really wanted to invest in, hoping that they would invest in me professionally. And it just didn't happen at all. I wasn't yeah. going to keep putting yeah. that effort in um, just to be discarded. Um, yeah. We, we, we actually do a, um, a program for uh, based on the film Win Win, which uh, Paul Giamatti plays a solo practitioner who makes some. He's a, and he's a decent guy. He's not this Hollywood villain, but he's 
got financial stressors and he makes a bad choice. And um, one of the programs we did, one of the attendees said she chose to become a solo practitioner because she could create the ethical, the, the culture of ethics. Yep. Uh, around her practice. She didn't have to worry about anybody else. Now, of course, she had to worry about herself and doing the right thing ethically. But um, I think of that when you say, I'm going to do a solo practice. You you set the tone, you set the culture, ethics and otherwise. You don't have to worry about being um, blindsided by you know, what happened to you, which was, of course, worst case scenario. Absolutely. And, you know, even with the associate I was working with, I he was not pulling his weight. And at the end of the Mm -hmm. day, you cannot Mm -hmm. force somebody to do something that they don't want to do and you Mm -hmm. can't convince them to do it. So I gave it one last attempt uh, at, you know, making it work um, through some like professional business, professional counseling type thing. Like, Hey, what can we do? What next steps can we kind of make? And it just Mm -hmm. wasn't going to happen. And it just solidified what I had already known was it wasn't going to work. And I think the reason up until that point, aside from, just not wanting to let go. I was scared to go out on my own um, mm-hmm. because yeah. I'd always enjoyed that camaraderie of having at least another lawyer with me. But then sure. once I finally realized I'd already run a practice by myself for the entire year, <laughs> it became really, true. yeah, it became really, uh, I guess, comforting to know, oh, hey, I actually can do this because I have. And that's what really changed things. I had proven to myself that I was enough. And mm-hmm. when you asked me like what actually happened, you know, when the flip, the switch was flipped and that's yeah. w- what it was. I'd proven to myself that I was enough. And that's a huge, powerful idea because for somebody who had the negative self-talk and always felt that they should be a certain way or they weren't enough, I, that's just insane. That's an insane mm-hmm. thought that it took mm-hmm. all of that, <laughs> all of mm-hmm. that to finally believe it. But that's mm-hmm. what it was. And I just took uh, a lot of confidence in where I was and how I'd gotten there and just decided, one, that I was going to do what I needed to do to make myself happy and also finally not care what other people thought. And that's a Mm -hmm. huge thing to get over. Yeah, yeah. And how are you doing with that? I'm doing really well, actually. Um, Yeah, I, I can't even go back to that mindset. Not that I won't let myself, I won't. But even if I ever try to say, I'm going to push myself because somebody's going to think less of me if I don't, I can't get back there mentally. And thank God, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. But I don't have to fight it and myself, it being myself, right? I don't have to fight myself like I used to. And that's that's a very great place to be after so much time and uh, so much energy being spent otherwise. Yeah, and it's not about. So you certainly have standards. Yes. And um, and you can tell from your website, of course, it's pretty clear. And you certainly care about doing a good job and being thought of as competent and capable and caring about your clients. So it's not about I don't care about that. I, you know, screw other people. It's that it's not the be all and end all. That I must be liked, or I must be thought of in this way, or um, it, it's, you know, the end of the world. Absolutely. Not letting that lead your, lead your decisions. Right. Right. And I'm the, the first one, if I've got a major response to a, a motion due, I I'm pulling long nights, right. Or working on the mm-hmm. weekends, but it is not, uh, going to be the norm for me. And it's just not a way 
to live life uh, at that level. It's just not sustainable from a very basic mm-hmm. standpoint, but it's also not fulfilling <laughs> to any degree if anybody's right. really honest with themselves about it. So did you, were you still in therapy when you um, was, you were making this change when you were starting your own practice? I or, was, thank or, God. So okay. I had started okay. back with therapy a couple months after I'd started that job. And that's when I was kind of the, where do I go now? You know, who am I? What do I do? And mm-hmm. uh, which I just, like I said, I can't imagine not being in therapy and having gone through all that stuff, but mm-hmm. it was very, very helpful to have someone who had been with me through that entire thing. Uh, to know right. the whole backstory, obviously, and to help me process it and process, uh, you know, it honestly, it's almost like the death of something, right? It's literal in one sense, but mm-hmm. even going away from the partner that I'd been with after that, it's it's yeah. the death of a relationship or... Absolutely. Um, especially when you've gone through that much together uh, in that short amount of time, it's, it's intense uh, to walk away from yeah, I- something like that. I do grief workshops for lawyers. Yeah. Um, and, and sometimes the, the, the focus is solely on death, literally people and loved ones or folks who are close to them who have died. But sometimes I do groups around loss, but not loss around death. Loss that you're talking about around, yep. around relationships or, uh, or uh, the death of a practice. Yep. Or, or dream. You, you may have had this dream that, okay, this is how this, I can imagine how this practice is going to look in 10 years or 15 years or 30 years. Yep. And um, so does that resonate with you as well? Absolutely. And it, I feel like I remember reading somewhere or hearing somewhere that it takes about half the time to get over someone as the relationship itself lasted. And ah, it interesting. really, uh, looking back, I it's, it was very true in my case, the time that I'd worked with this individual, um, it's about three years, I guess. And it took me about a year and a half after that to fully Mm -hmm. let Mm -hmm. go. Um, because I am somebody who does care about people. I do care about the impact I have on those people. And Mm -hmm. like I said, simply the fact of what we went through together in such a short amount of time, it's just, it was very traumatic. And so, it was a lot to process, let alone walk away from. But again, it's it's the best thing that's happened to me. I would never wish it on my worst enemy, right. but it is the best thing that's happened to me because it completely shifted my life for the better at such a relatively young age. Well, there's a concept actually called post-traumatic growth uh, when you're dealing with, um, and there's research around this, dealing with a loss, a significant loss or trauma that... Uh, you can really grow from the experience of of coping with the trauma or coping with the loss. Not that the loss is ever a good thing or the right. trauma is ever a good thing, but how you uh, cope with it, how you respond to it can lead to growth. Absolutely. Such as, right? Such as looking back and thinking, wow, I, I, I dealt with this. I handled this. I came out the other side and I had these strengths that I didn't know that I had. Yep. And it's crazy because I'd done a lot of things up until that point where I had, uh, you know, established resilience, but it still was never enough in my mind to, uh, I guess, satiate that idea of being enough, right? Until mm-hmm. everything like that happened. And whenever I told people about what was going on or what has happened, they're like, that is literally the most insane thing. Like, how could you hmm. 
How could right. you say that you weren't doing enough? And I would never tell anyone else that because I wouldn't act, believe that about anybody else. But for me, I held myself to a certain standard that if I didn't do the utmost of my ability, I was failing somehow. And so to be able to move past that feeling and uh, not only move past it, but genuinely believe the opposite is, is a really uh, just paramount thing in my life that's influencing so much better. And, and, and as being a female, I know, of course, that, that it's changing a lot and that, that more females, I think, are graduating from law school than males, uh, at least last time I read that. I, I don't think it's changed. Um, but as being a female in the legal field, is that still, um, does that still pro- provide you some hurdles that you have to deal with or, or has that also changed? Uh, I'd like to say it's changed, but not in my experience. Um, I mean, I remember being in my first legal job in high school and being sexually harassed, but that doesn't happen anymore, at least. Mm -hmm. I mean, for Mm -hmm. me, it hasn't. um, But I also am an older and wouldn't tolerate it at all because now I know how to cope and deal with interactions like that. But it's still just as much of a challenge to interact with colleagues and uh, opposing counsel I think especially I would have thought that on my own, I would have somehow, you know, overcome some of that. Like people would think I'm more legitimate, whatever that means by having my own practice or, you know, at least respect me a little bit more. No, it hasn't. I still have Mm -hmm. to work probably twice as hard as any of my male colleagues to get the same stuff done. Um, In particular, I have co-counsel on a case, which kind of makes it even worse. A number of, very established and qualified attorneys and they do great work, but I, they will not listen to me, will not give me the Mm. time of day on cases, on the cases that we have together. And uh, it's a big piece of litigation. Mm -hmm. Um, I, it's to the point where I have to actually, my last partner who I've referenced, I had to send emails over his signature to sometimes get things accomplished. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. They're not, they wouldn't take it seriously. If it was your signature. No. And then even when I pointed out things that are major issues, I feel like I'm almost having to be an errant child to Mm. get their attention. I mean, literally to Mm -hmm. get them to respond to an email, I have to start Mm -hmm. being snarky or, you know, sarcastic. And it's not for lack of trying before then to really be PC and, you know, navigate these waters. But, um, yeah, it's, it's baffling. It's it's a catch 22 also, because when you, when you, when you do, when you are that way, then, then you're called a bitch either oh, to course. your face or behind your back. Yeah. Yeah. yeah of yeah. course. So it's, uh, it's definitely still challenging. Um, but I think that may be more personal injury just because there's mostly mm-hmm. men, um, in mm-hmm. personal injury in particular. I know like family law has a lot more women, um, in that area. So I'm hoping it's better in those areas, but personal injury is definitely not. And I think, uh, I don't expect it to really get any better anytime soon unless there's more awareness about it or even more women in there standing up and saying something right. about it. Right. Um, all right. So let's just spend the rest of the time, Catherine, unless you have anything else you want to add about what we've talked about and certainly feel free to do that. But I, I want to spend the rest of the time just talking about to you about what do you do day to day to, um, to be resilient to, I know, Hopefully, that none of this stuff that you've described happens to you again. 
that's hopefully a once in a lifetime or, or for most people, never in a lifetime experiences. But um, practicing law is difficult, right? Yep. So, so what are the, and, and, and these, these kind of, um, these gremlins that you dealt with back in the day, they still probably, they pop up still. I would imagine uh, every every so often. So, what are the, some of the things you do day to day that help you cope, help help you build resilience? Yeah, I have a a few very small things that people I think can implement right now. Um, mm-hmm. One, the biggest thing is putting things in perspective. And I actually I learned mm-hmm. this uh, back when I worked at Big Law because I'd be working twenty three hours straight trying to do something for these people and. Um, I would be putting so much pressure on myself and I just stopped and realized I had asked myself two questions. One, Mm -hmm. is anybody going to die? There's a reason I'm not a pilot. There's a reason I'm not a doctor. Okay. So, but Mm -hmm. for everybody, (laughs) generally speaking, nobody's going to die generally. And is there anything we can do about it? If there is, let's do it. If it's something that's already happened, let it go. That's all. I mean, literally you have to let it go because you can't do anything about it. Um, Mm -hmm. and that really, you know, gives us, you know, gives me the, the ability to focus on what really matters at that point in time, worrying about what's already, uh, happened is not going to do you any good. Um, it's, it's pausing, it's building a pause and like stepping back. That's what you mean. I think by gaining perspective and stepping back and, and taking it all in and asking yourself those questions that you, you just posed rather than just being on automatic pilot and not not pausing, taking a breath and asking those questions. Absolutely. And another thing I do mm-hmm. is uh, my therapist had taught me this was when I start mm-hmm. having this negative self-talk, ask myself, is there any evidence, especially as a lawyer, we right. don't appreciate that. Is there any evidence to support that? And right. there's not, there never is, right? Because our self-talk mm-hmm. is so much more negative. One right. that we would ever say to anybody else, let alone what actually is occurring. And That's so right. if there's not any evidence to support it, then you can basically say like, okay, my, my feeling is valid, right? But mm-hmm. this is not reality. This is a distorted feeling mm-hmm. or perception of reality. Um, mm-hmm. And I personally do. May- oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Finish. I was just going to say, I personally delved into a lot of the psychology of just people generally, and it really helps breaking it down to... Uh, you know, the science of it. So it, it, I think maybe part of it's being the lawyer in me, you know, I'm able to say, okay, this is, this is a feeling, but it's not real. Right. For lack of right. a better phrase. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes um, you said, is there any evidence to support that? Sometimes there's evidence such as um, you could be saying to yourself, I, I, uh, you're right. It's right, right before trial is going to start and you're telling yourself, Oh my gosh, this trial is just going to, this is going to be a disaster. Um, or I, I, I suck as a lawyer, even before the trial starts. Right. Um, and if you drill down and ask your que- yourself questions, okay, what's going on here? Why do I think the trial is going to be a disaster even before it starts? Or why do I think I suck as a lawyer? Well, if you ask yourself questions, you might eventually get to the point where you're realizing, Oh, I haven't, I haven't prepared my opening statement in a way that I'm comfortable with or, or confident with is a good way to start the trial. So great. That's something you can work with. Right. That, that is something that is, um, is fixable. 
And so that's what I mean by sometimes when you have these thoughts, it can help to take a step back and, and, and look underneath them. And maybe there is something fixable there that's, that's more reasonable and more realistic than ex- exaggerating to, to the point where you're thinking the trial is going to be horrible or, or you're a horrible lawyer. Exactly. And I mean, I think it's asking why five times, right? Kind of mm. drilling down to the root of mm-hmm. where, where that feeling's coming from. Um, Mm -hmm. and that's really helpful. I've also been Mm -hmm. very, uh, focused on growth mindset since everything's happened. Uh I mean, if anything ever prior to that had gone, you know, not according to plan, it was detrimental to me. Um, that idea of not having control was just debilitating almost. And now I've, like I said, if I can get past that, darn near anything else in my life, knock on wood, is going to be less intense. So it really does, uh, you know, help to be able to go into challenges and say, okay, what can I learn from this? What did I learn from it? As opposed to, oh my God, this is, you know, just going to be absolutely traumatic, which is, is easy to do when you're tying your value as a human being to your ability to perform, especially in these professions where somebody's going to lose, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. it's hard to get to that point. Yeah. Those are really three solid things that I could see helping you very much putting things in perspective, um, pushing back against negative self-talk, which is cognitive behavioral therapy mm-hmm. is, uh, has been proven through years and years of research to be a very effective way to, um, improve your, your attitude, improve your emotions to just not accept these negative tapes that we have. And then the growth mindset is also really uh, exceptional because I think a lot of lawyers struggle with that. A lot of lawyers struggle with when things don't go according to plan, when there is change. That can be really difficult for a lot of attorneys. Right. And I don't, I think a lot of it might be personality, but I think also my generation mm. in particular, I think I was the last of the generation uh, that didn't just get participation trophies. So um, <laughs> I think everybody after me is going to have a real hard time uh, dealing with that concept of, you know, not having a fixed mindset and and encountering Mm -hmm. adversity in a healthy way and developing resilience. Um, But there's definitely tools out there. And like you said, I mean, there's plenty of people that are older than me that have a hard time. And I think that goes back to the winning or losing mentality that, you know, if you lose a trial, somebody has to lose, right? If you lose a trial, it's not, Generally speaking, it's not you. You're you're not the reason, right? Somebody at some point right. can do the best they can, and you're still going to have a loser. Right. Um, but you know, not taking that to to mean that you're a loser, right? The difference between um, right. Oh, what is it? I am bad versus I did something bad. Uh, exactly. So that's but that's you know it's a semantics you know idea, but it really does make a difference in how you approach things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I was going to make a point about that and it just escaped me about that. Shoot. I hate when that happens. Mm -hmm. Um, so hopefully it'll pop in my head before we're done. And we've got just a few minutes left, Catherine, but do you have any, um, any tools that you use, any other tools that you use that, that even something maybe that you can do with us on the podcast? Is there a breathing exercise that you do or some, something else that something quick and, easy that you can describe to us? And if not, I'm putting you on the spot. We didn't talk about this much no, no, that's <laughs> before okay. we started. Um, I, I 
couldn't really do it per se, but I use an app. Um, I use mm-hmm. the breathing app. There's a ton of them out okay. there. But breath okay. is the one. Uh, okay. It's actually called breath? Uh, of course, now it's like wanting to do an update. I think breathing is what it is, technically. But there's a number of them out okay. there. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And they're visual in nature, too, which is nice. So, yeah. yeah. And it... So we can reason our way through a lot of these thoughts, but sometimes you just can't override what you're feeling in that moment. Um, mm-hmm. And so having something to distract yourself with, like focusing on your breathing really helps, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. center yourself at the end of the day. And what I also yeah. do is I listen to myself and I have the luxury of doing this because I have my own business. But if I am just hitting a wall and I can't get through what I need to, or it's just been one of those days, I step away. Yeah. I, you know, maybe in the middle of the week, take the afternoon for a couple hours to watch shows on Netflix, just to be compressed. Yeah. And um, because there's no sense in pushing yourself through something if you're just going to keep hitting the wall over and over and over That's again. Right. I mean, you're not helping anyone right. <laughs> at that point. Right. So. Yeah. I, I think that's great that you're that you're able to do that. That can be hard for a lot of folks to step away. I agree. And and and, and know that, you know what, in the long term, this is actually going to be better. I'm going to be more efficient. I'm going to be more productive. If I step away and watch Netflix for a couple hours, or or, or go for a jog, or um, or or you know go 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 uh, have an ice cream sundae or whatever, yeah, just to get away. Well, even people that are in firms or you know any other job, literally going and sitting in the bathroom, you know, like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. just taking 10, 15 minutes. I mean, what's somebody going to yep. do? Come bother you while you're in the bathroom? <laughs> it shouldn't be, <laughs> uh, but. Right. Take that time and just work on the breathing app. The it finally looked breathing zone is the one I breathing would, zone. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. And just take that time to yourself because here's the biggest thing that I've learned: nobody else is going to do this for you. Nobody is going mm-hmm. to start drawing these boundaries. Nobody is going to say that you shouldn't be doing this mm-hmm. to yourself. They may say it, mm-hmm. but they're not going to be able mm-hmm. to change it for you. And right. so you have to take control of what you're willing to endure in your life. And no matter what you believe, spiritually, religiously, life is relatively short. And none mm-hmm. of us know how long we have. So it's my firm belief that you should live life to its fullest and genuinely live a life of happiness, which is being the best version of yourself. It's not going to be rainbows and kittens every day. But no. it is a way to go through life that is... Uh, with open arms, you embrace what happens to you in a healthy way, um, which allows you to be happier as opposed to every single thing being debilitating or traumatic. Yeah. And you mentioned boundaries. That's such an important topic. We don't have a lot of time to talk about it, but setting boundaries, saying no, uh, knowing, you know, telling clients, I am, my, my partner does this. He says, I, I go dark after, I forget what time he does. And maybe it varies, maybe depending on what, what his workload is. But but he goes dark at, say, 7 o'clock where I'm just spending time with my family now. Yep. Uh, and, and setting those kind of boundaries, training your clients to know that, I think is really important. And also, you're right. It is, we are, it's up to us individually to make these changes. And there's no reason we need to do it alone. No. There's plenty of folks out there who will give us support like your therapist did or a coach or colleagues or a mentor. Uh, I do a couple of days a week at the Lawyer Assistance Program in uh, British Columbia. Nice. And I'm, and I'm constantly talking to my clients about that, about this is, and, and of course they've reached out to me. So I, I, I already compliment them on that. 
that's that's a big plus. But I also tell them you you need to to reach out to folks who you can trust in, yep. your, in your personal and professional life. Yep, it's a you can't you're right you can't do it alone. And I have to say, thankfully, my my family has been a huge support structure. My husband, uh, we've mm-hmm. been together 19 years, married for six. Mm. Uh, has I couldn't have gotten through it without him. So yeah, I know not everybody's that fortunate, but you can find, like you said, a therapist or somebody else that uh, may not be a family member to trust. Oh, uh, two more things before we we end, Catherine. This has been. Super fast for me. Hopefully it has yeah. been for you. But um, I, I was going to just mention an app also that I use regularly called 10% Happier. Okay, yeah. That, I've heard of that uh, one. For, for the listeners. Actually, this was started by a journalist on ABC, ABC News, who had a panic attack on the air. Wow. And and that was, uh, that was his kind of um, come to Jesus moment. Yep. And he started this app and he brings on a lot of experts who talk a lot about mindfulness and breathing exercises and things like that. Um, but I want to give you one last uh, opportunity to talk. Is there anything else you want to say about your book or about anything else? Definitely. So I've uh, one of the challenges that I've had to overcome is uh, recognizing that I want to step back from my practice of personal Mm -hmm. injury. I don't want to not be a lawyer. I don't want to not practice, Mm -hmm. but I want to shift my efforts to helping other professionals uh, overcome adversity and challenges in their life. Like I've learned. So Mm -hmm. I've incorporated my own business. I've done the writing, the speaking, and now I'm starting to do the coaching, the one-on-one coaching as well. Great. Um, So if anybody's interested in that, you know, definitely reach out to me, but I'm happy to give away one of my books to the first person that reaches out Mm. to me. um, Okay. How would they do that? Yeah, you can email me at Catherine at kfburmeister.com. And I'm sure you'll put that in the the notes because I usually end up having to spell it out for everybody. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, we will do that. <laughs> yeah, or even on Instagram, I'm on there as well. So uh, mm-hmm. all my social media is on my my website, Catherine F. Burmeister. So just reach out to me. The first person who does, I'm happy to send a book their way. Um, but yeah, it's I, I just really want people to take the time to consider what, what their life is worth to them, honestly, and is it worth mm-hmm. continuing to live it unhappy and unfulfilled? And I think everybody's going to say it's not. Um, so taking the steps to change that for themselves is is the first place to start. Well, I'm, I'm excited that you're going out there and coaching because I think you're going to be a wonderful resource Thank you for, uh, for lawyers. And we need more folks, more lawyers out there doing this because I think Unfortunately, but this is just the case and probably the case in other professions that lawyers are going to, you're automatically going to have credibility if you are a lawyer yeah, or if you've been a lawyer. And if you're not, it's going to be, for some lawyers, it's going to be a little more uh, a cha- of a challenge. Yep. So the fact that you have that experience uh, is going to, uh, the, the, you won't have to go through that building of the relationship that you would if you were just a personal coach without the legal experience. Right. Well, I think too, also having gone through what I did. Um, Personally. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's easier mm-hmm. to relate. Um, not to say that professionals yeah. are not good at doing that. They're literally, that's what they do for a living, but you're right. right. That's, that's what I'm excited about hoping to tap into with people. And one last thing, I just want to give you a shout out. Well, we, we began me uh, with me commenting on your being an animal loving lawyer. Yes. I want to end on that too. Just uh, maybe maybe thirty seconds to a, to a minute. Uh, what what you're doing around that and why it's on your website? 
Sure. So I've done a lot of animal advocacy through the years, literally scaling fences in the sixth grade to rescue cats out of uh, uh, <laughs> generators. Um, but I right now do pro bono work occasionally for the Animal Legal Defense Fund when they need it um, and advocating for animals, the laws to enforce you know, anti-cruelty laws and whatnot. But I currently yeah. have four cats and one dog. He actually just turned nine months old. I lost my two oldest babies last mm. fall. And oh, uh, speaking of speaking of difficult grief, yeah, yeah, tell me about it. Um, yeah. Oh boy, they are. They're. Yeah. I mean, I say babies because I I don't have children. I'm not mm-hmm. going to have children. I genuinely believe mm-hmm. they are my children to a degree. I'm not dressing yeah. them hey, up, but you know, I <laughs> I am I am with you. I don't dress them up either. We we uh, our our dog of 14 years, uh, 13 years died a year ago, and boy, it it never gets easy. But at the same time, I'm gonna get another dog. Yep. And, that it'll never stop me from continuing to have dogs. No, and I told my uh, my boy last year. I said, you know, I promised him I would adopt a shy baby because he was shy, and most people want obviously mm. the extroverted, outgoing dog. And so, sure enough, it, mm. everything aligned, and uh, I found this puppy, and he was right up my alley. Would not come up to me at all. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so he came home, and of course now he's like Velcro. Uh, he's my shadow, and mm. he loves my husband, and has gotten used to him. And now he goes out with us to breweries. So yeah, they're they're the best. <laughs> well, and animals. Uh, this is not this is not unrelated to what we're talking about here. Animals can be a wonderful source yes. of of support, uh, particularly during COVID for me. Our, our dog was just was was a lifeline for me. Yeah. To to just be able to to get down on the ground with and uh, and 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 uh, just she helped me relax. I always think and of there's a little perspective. Yeah, there's a little cartoon I've seen before. It's a stick figure facing the sun and a dog's next to him. It says mindful, um, which is, you know, mind space full. And it's just all these thoughts uh-huh. going around his head. And then the next uh-huh. scene is mindful, M-I-N-D-F-U-L. And just thinking about his dog and walking with his yeah. dog. And yeah, yeah. They yeah. do. They help us put things in perspective as well. Well, Catherine, thank you so much. We've, we've gone even to a touch longer than we were supposed to. So I appreciate uh, your, your giving your uh, an hour plus of your time because uh, I think it's, it's going to be so helpful for the folks who listen to this podcast. And I hope to, uh, to speak with you again down the road and, and follow up with you and see how you're doing with all this. Definitely. Sounds great. Thank you so much for having me. All right, Catherine. Thank you. And thank you, everybody, for for listening. We'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Thriving Lawyers podcast. We love hearing from our loyal listeners, so please feel free to email us any questions, comments, suggested topics, or guest recommendations at the following address, feedback at thrivinglawyerspodcast.com. The Thriving Lawyers podcast is brought to you by Real-Time Creative Learning Experiences a national provider of continuing legal education and professional development programs that leave participants engaged, encouraged, and equipped to pursue meaningful and sustainable change in their practices, their lives, and the organizations they work in. And by Osborne Conflict Resolution, your experience guides through the uncharted terrain of business and family law disputes based out of Charlotte, North Carolina. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Thriving Lawyers Podcast.